Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan, presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 25. A quick note of appreciation for all the listener feedback we've received in recent weeks. It's been really awesome. And if you like these episodes, I hope you share them with your friends as we're trying to get better at bringing the listeners into the conversation with each episode. Uh, This podcast, it's available on all platforms, and we encourage you to download, listen, rate, comment, and subscribe if you like it. It's probably not surprising to hear that the recent feedback has centered a lot around gratitude from people just trying to get through the week or the day. And that's great. That really makes me proud that these conversations are having that kind of an impact for people. So with that in mind, the COVID-19 notes that will start this show every week until we're through the woods on this pandemic. The CDC's identified symptoms for COVID-19 include runny nose, sore throat, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If you're not feeling well, call your doctor. The World Health Organization's behavioral recommendations that everyone should follow. Wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. If you have to cough or sneeze, do so into your elbow. Social distancing. Avoid groups of 10 or more people and stay away from everyone as much as you can. If you're not feeling well, get checked out as soon as possible. And if you can work from home, do it. And checking with my producer, Ryan Fawcett here to make sure that, yep. Yeah, the World Health Organization is still advising against injecting yourself with bleach. And a massive thank you to the essential workers out there from hospital staff to grocery workers, delivery drivers, firemen, and everyone out there working through the pandemic to keep people safe. All right, episode 25. So I'll level with you. Um, Some days are pretty hard for me. And I know that I'm in a fortunate situation. I still have a job. My kids are healthy. I get to surf. So me having a hard day needs to be taken in context. But I think it's pretty easy to get sad in a hurry at the moment. Uh, The uncertainty and the hyper-politicized society, it really takes something organically uncertain and pointlessly destabilizes the shit out of it. Uh, It's a lot for all of us to deal with. So... I'm really thankful for surfing at the moment. I took my kids to the neighborhood beach today and I watched them catch some waves and I saw how stoked they were. Then I caught a few waves and I got really stoked. And then I came home and I saw that Dane Reynolds' new site, chapter11.tv is live. And I watched some edits and that made me really happy. And whatever happens between now and the other side of the pandemic, surfing will still be there. And that can mean different things for different people, and that's rad. But one thing that I think is probably common for everyone is it just makes people happy. And our guest today is someone who is no stranger to psyching people out with surfing. He's been doing it for about 30 years. He's made dozens, uh, generations of careers for people through surfing. He's one of the leading arbiters of high-performance surfing on the planet, He's a creator and innovator and someone who has made a huge impact on my life through his work. So it was an honor to talk to him. Please enjoy the lineup's low tide conversation with Taylor Steele. The good old clap take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's <laughs> 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 
kingmaker, Taylor Steele, joining the lineup for uh, a lineup at Low Tide Edition. Um, surreal times. Uh, how are you doing today? Where are you and, and what are you up to? I'm in Solana Beach. Um, I was in New York when it all started going down. And I just, once my daughter's school was canceled, I took her and we flew back to San Diego. We just posted up at my house here. Did you surf today? Are you going to surf? Is surfing still allowed in San Diego? Surfing's allowed in San Diego. It just opened up um, four days ago. And so uh, I spent six weeks out of the water. And uh, to get back in, I've surfed every day since it's been open. And I'm starting to get that rust out. And it's feeling good. For sure. And how long have you guys been in New York for? And, and what were you guys doing out there? I spend half my time in New York. And my one daughter goes to school in New York. And the other daughter goes to school um, in California. And so... Um, we, we just bounce back and forth. And uh, I've been out there for four years. And um, I've always been inspired by the New York creativity and the energy there. And just um, for filmmaking and arts and music, it's a center place. So I like to be close to the hub. That's rad. Well, so for today's episode, we really try to, on these low tide episodes, we try to center around a singular topic. And, and I thought today would be awesome to talk to you about that balance between free surfing and competitive surfing, given your life really is as an arbiter of, of high performance surfing. But uh, before we get into it, super important question. Why the fuck was Timmy Curran omitted from the Momentum Generation documentary? <laughs> I mean, we've got Focus, Good Times, the show, the people of Oxnard really need to know. You know, I would say there's a lot of people like Conan Hayes, the Malloys, Tim Curran were um, omitted from it. And it was due to the, the story arc. The story arc wasn't exactly about the film itself. It was about how as friends, we were all connected and then life got in the way of that. And then we came back together. And I would say we're, we're friends with Timmy, but we don't really see him as much as the rest of the crew. So it's more about the journey of friendship than it is the film. But, but I feel like, uh, that's a big question on why Timmy doesn't get more credit on airs and, and a lot of this stuff like uh, some of the legends from back in the day get a lot of credit, and he's sort of omitted from that conversation. So I think that's sort of a bigger conversation than. Well, I, I like that you brought up Conan too. Maybe there's like room for a a, a a sister documentary, you know? Yeah. Well, there's all these interviews done by with all those people, so they just couldn't weave it in. I, I wanted maybe a TV series of each one of you know their arcs because Timmy Timmy had a crazy arc with his journey and Conan as well. All of them have like crazy stories. It's just how it fits as a group. Totally. Well, we could spend you know several days kind of reviewing your career trajectory and the impact of your films, which I'm sure will be sprinkled throughout today's discussion. But really, I wanted to get a conversation around your perspective on that balance between free surfing and competitive surfing and, and your role as an arbiter of high performance surfing. So as an entry point, as it stands today in 2020, what is your opinion on what's more valuable for a surfer? Is it the WSL title or the end section of a Taylor Steele film? <laughs> uh, there hasn't been an end section in one of my films for a long time now. Um, um, I would say like what, what I find when I watch the WSL and the contests that are going on, especially in like performance waves, um, like Chromis and, and all those ones, um, is that guys are dropping sections in 30 minutes. Mm. And that performance void that was sort of missing when when I stopped making those films and and you know like Kai Neville stopped really sort of making a lot of films um, was filled by the WSL and in heats with a pressure on and and really delivering these big maneuvers. So for me, like I think the performance side is well covered with the contests themselves. 
Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up too, because that's it's something anytime I get into a tangle about like the judging, which seems to be every day, I say, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not a WSL judging apologist, but they do deserve a lot of credit because I think the way they've interpreted the criteria over the last decade in particular has really encouraged the surfers to surf at a very, very high level, maybe the highest level in the live arena. And, um, you know, when I started, Wayne Bartholomew was our president and we had the world's best surfers, world's best waves tag. And we that may have been true, but it wasn't always the world's best surfing in competition. Often it was in your films. And and as you kind of pointed out, that's balanced quite a bit, especially when you talk about guys like Italo at Karamas or something like that. Yeah, you know, like... It, the guys were able to just fall out and push themselves and, and uh, keep trying new maneuvers with, when we were filming. But I was always uh, feeling like second fiddle to the contest and like the, their, their magic boards were saved to, for the contest. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would always hope for them to try a new board when we'd film because it was a chance of magic and I'd get a little like a glimpse of that before they, they put it um, on ice. So... For me, like I followed the tour during the 90s um, and we would shoot off the contest and I was sort of rooting for people to lose so that we could get that swell and, and, and um, you know, capture stuff at the location. But um, I was pretty much secondary to the contest back in the day. It's funny, too, because when I before I started, I started in 06 and I was in school 01 to 05. And that was when the brands funded a lot of the, the surf films, but they were also the event licensees. And so kind of the expression of high performance surfing was really ubiquitous between like surf films and competition. Cause you know, if I was a fan of Andy Irons, I'd like, I'd watch him in trilogy and then I'd go watch him like beat Kelly at Chiba. And to me it was like, it's all Andy, you know, it didn't feel kind of separated. It was just all part and parcel. And I think that there was like a specialization era as we moved into like 2010 and then post acquisition at, uh, with the ASP WSL where like competitive surfing really started getting hyper-specific um, in its expression and created kind of space for that free surfer to exist um, apart from it in, in a lot of ways. Was that something that you felt in the 90s as well? Did you feel like not so much the guys you were working with were either or, but they would kind of, they would be different characters, whether they're in the jersey or they're in the film? Yeah, there. Uh, you know, like what was um, interesting during that time, there was contest surfers and then there was free surfers but the guys that did both were the ones that were paid the big bucks and, right. you know, like they were the, the, the top. And so, um, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't just, Kelly wasn't just doing the contest. He was, he was competing for, for the end section and the contest. And if you think about how much time that requires from, from everybody, like we would do three to five trips that were really intense shoots each year. And to, to sprinkle that in with the contests that were like, I feel like a busier schedule back then even, um, it was a lot of commitment. So the guys were, were dedicated to sort of build their profile that way. I was talking to Pat O'Connell about this the other day, and he said you were really transformative in, in depicting like world-class surfing in sort of everyday conditions, which wasn't always the case before. Um, and that that really like took you know Pat and his peers and that momentum generation and put them on the global stage in a major, major way because it was so relatable and because everyone could say like, not that, not that those films didn't have great waves, but a lot of the sections were filmed in, in relatable conditions and just seeing people do things that were almost mind-bending 
was really cool as a surfer because you're like, I, I can go down the street and try that if I want. And I said, I think that really echoed later on what kind of Dane and Marine Layer did too, because he was kind of the first guy in a long time that was like comfortable putting himself falling or surfing Emma Wood every day of his like yeah. non-tour life. Um, was that intentional? Did you kind of pick up on that as you're releasing these films as one of the sort of the successful pillars of them? Yeah, I, you know, I think when I started, I just wanted to be different than what was out there. And Jack McCoy and, um, you know, all the films that were out there, they were shot with film and it was beautiful and it was slow-mo and it was great waves. And I didn't have the budget for one. So that was making do with what I had. But um, just shooting shooting um, my local break. Um, I think we shot Oceanside a lot for those movies and Seaside. And the guys would come and stay at my house all summer to try to get clips. And so three months in California to try to get footage is a, you wouldn't do that nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you, you as a filmmaker, I mean, especially when you move into spaces like sipping jet streams or castles in the sky and stuff, I mean, evolves really fair, right. In the sense of like what you were bringing in terms of an expression from, I mean, I, I, your early films almost probably coined that term surf porn in the sense of like, it was very hi-fi, very quick, all action to kind of more, like story or or like um visualizations of, of sort of travel and culture um i'm sure that was intentional but can you talk a little bit about your trajectory as a filmmaker between how you started and where you ended up at least as far as the surf films were concerned yeah i would say like i think for me making the same movie over and over again is uh it's a dangerous thing like i got a lot of fame right out the gates with momentum in, in the surf world and um, having that much attention is, is a negative thing for being creative. You know, it doesn't really push yourself to, to try new things. You want to appease what you think everybody wants to see. And so I feel like I just kept repeating that to a point where I was going mad and I, as, as, a, as a creative. And then I just broke out and did some different style films and Sipping Jet Streams being one of them. And once that sort of resonated with people, it gave me confidence to keep going down that route. And I think it's, yeah, I think... For me, like I, I looked at people outside the surf industry and like Beck and like musicians and the way they would change their music per album and like tried to tried to be different. And that was sort of an inspiration to try to push myself that way. Yeah, I mean, success, I think for like a creative, you read about it, whether it's like a, you know, an artist or a musician or, or any of that can be like a real barrier to development as well too right because it's like well i'm scared to try something different if it's working so well and like i'm I'm working with the best guys and i have the formula down and it's probably not an easy leap to kind of get that confidence to go do something else yeah i think like i would have made a lot more money if i made momentum 30 like this year (laughs) and so that would have been easy i would have had the whole formula we probably would be like just on autopilot having a filmer in Bali, having a filmer, you know, in Australia and just sort of like have it um, really set up. But for me, that wasn't that inspiring. Did you notice um, like a different set of audience um, resonating with your films as you kind of expanded? Um, Was that something you noticed? Because I know you toured a lot with your films as well. I'm wondering if you just noticed the makeup of the people in the crowd, they were they were attracted to different things. You know, like what I probably noticed the most is that the crowd aged with me. So, so it's like the same people that went to Momentum One are going to Sipping Jet Streams that are going to maybe Proximity. And, you know, like they've gone in this 25 year journey and it still resonates with them where maybe I've, I've lost touch with a younger generation. But it's it's really I don't think it's the right way to approach creative to try to go like, what do the kids want to see? Right. You, you should always make something that resonates with yourself and is honest with yourself. 
you you brought up people would come to film with you for three months in California, and I I, I was watching um uh, what was it the other day um whatever I oh, mean I'm losing it uh, Stranger Than Fiction excuse me the other day and um, the surfing so good in it and the creative so good in it but I always wondered about like who is the ultimate um, key holder to getting in your films and who is the ultimate decider on that final section and how relationships versus merit versus potentially like a pay to play um, option um, operates. I, I kind of was thinking, I have no idea if this is true or not, but if I was a sponsor and I had a free surfer, I would almost go to you and say, hey, here's 50,000, here's 100,000, here's 150,000. I want to guarantee that my investment in this free surfer is getting in your film. Did that ever happen? And, and how does that final section get decided? Well, as far as financing, um, Billabong and, and Bob Hurley were really helpful during the early age when I didn't have much money. And they had a lot of surfers that were on Billabong. And so they just, they helped my tra- pay for my travel. And then... It was, but it was a no-brainer. It was like Shane Ross, Kalani, all these Malloys, all these guys. I wanted to get in there anyways, and right. so it was a natural fit. It was there was never a situation where there was a surfer that didn't earn it, get in there. Even my brother, you know, like he's a great surfer. At dinner table, my parents would be like, "How come Cody doesn't have any waves in the movie?" And so <laughs> I'd get pressure from all different places, um, but uh, never, never in, in that in the way that um, you know someone paid for a last section. Um, but with, with the last section, um, for the early nineties, I just picked the last section. I was pretty much in charge of 80% of the production of that, those films. But then as, as we move into the zeros, um, I would, I would go with my theory and I would show it in a crowd and then sort of feel the energy on certain sections. And, and actually in campaign two, I started with, um, Kelly as the last section and then the crowd was just so animate about Shane's section that I switched it and when the movie came out. And even midway through our touring, we switched it. And so, um, you know, like I, I would, I would, I would uh, allow a lot of feedback from people um, in, in that sense. But um, you mentioned Dane earlier. Um, Dane was in the edit room when we were editing Strange in the Fiction, and he wanted to use a lot of falls back then. And, and those sections were so tight, three minutes and all this. I didn't want to use any falls, so it was sort of like a, a debate back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know, what was the conversation like with Kelly when you told him that you swapped him for Shane for that last section in campaign two? It, you know, like, it was one of those things. Uh, it was, we premiered it in Hollywood, or I think it was Malibu, somewhere in L.A., um, and it was a big thing with Field TV, and it was like a big, big, like, blue carpet sort of thing. And it, Kelly, everybody was there in the movie, but Kelly, uh, Shane and Andy were all, we were all hanging out. And I, I just pulled him each aside and said, Hey guys, what do you think of, uh, uh, Shane as the last section without telling Shane and, and Andy was all for it. And Kelly's like, I think he deserves it. And so like, I sort of, uh, leaned on them a little bit because any one of those three could have had the last sections. If you, if you watch those again, I think, uh, I was really torn on whether Andy should have the last section um, on that one as well. But I think what sort of the deciding factors for me is like how crazy is the first wave and how mm. crazy is the last wave. And I think he just was just missing like a real like big turn for the first wave. and But it was like super close. Yeah, I, I remember that one vividly in that like the mind blowing part about that Shane section is he's like he's really pushing it, towing chopes and and paddling jaws and just the high performance stuff in between it was like that was a real calling card for him in the sense of like this is a this is the most well-rounded surfer of the moment 
Um, and that final section, I was going to say, like, I, I'm sure there was awareness on your part that that really made and made and broke like a lot of careers, like in surfing. I mean, I'm sure contracts were made straight, like strictly on the back of getting that final section and having that proof of concept. Yeah. I, I, well, the final section for like forever was just owned by Kelly. Mm. Um, so that wasn't really part of the contracts, but what was part of contracts was having a section. Yep. And, and there were six figure deals of having a section built in uh, contract incentives. Um, I never got any kickbacks on that, but, but, um, yeah, I, I do know they were there. <laughs> <laughs> um, were, were there surfers throughout the generations, um, really that you covered throughout your filmmaking that, either surprised you um, with the segment they produced or, or, or even kind of what they went on to accomplish in their career? Was there anyone at the start that you didn't maybe think as highly of until you saw the segment or until you saw what they ended up doing with their career, maybe outside of the film? Hmm. You know, there, it's, it's, that's a tough question. Um, I guess like for me, like um, a lot of times we'll go film with Kelly or, or, you know, some of the big names, Taj and all them, and they'll just get clips so fast that you just see their section, you know, in real time. And then there's other surfers like a Benji Wedley or, or some of those ones where they'll get one clip every 10 sections. And then when you start putting it together, they really, those sections elevate, you know? Mm. So um, there's just different ways that people, you know, like I'd be surprised on how they'd sort of all come together. Um, but as far as career wise, um, yeah, that's, that's, it's tough because, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys like Mike Lostness and, and guys that like made careers from being pretty much going on video trips. And um, that was that's a surprise in itself for me. Totally. I mean, I, I grew up, I think Mike's a year older than than I am, but he was like the NSSA machine. And I mean, there were so many of them that came through um, like California at that time that were kind of, you know, everyone's looking for the next Kelly Slater because they were just looking for that person that could win everything. And Mike is one of those guys that... Um, he really blossomed in the free surfing realm because he had such a unique style and he was so powerful and he was so technical and it felt like your films, like he had a bunch of segments in your films that really, that that's probably the high watermark of his uh, professional surfing career in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, like there, uh, uh, so especially in the early days, like the, um, looking back on it, the, the films, uh, elevated a lot of pros, um, careers, but it wasn't an accurate, you know, of who's the best guys. It was just the guys that I was friends with and, and shooting with. Um, it was mostly Americans, and it was just like our crew that we grew up with. Um, you know, there's Australians that were left out of that. You know, there was Hawaiians. There was a lot of people that should have been in there as well. So then as, as I progressed, that, that, that net got bigger and captured more, more of the guys uh, during that time. And, and lostness, you know, like, but part of that thing was who was easy to travel with, who was like, who would work hard, who would sort of not show up. Um, there's like, you know, famous stories of the Irons Brothers, like just not showing up on the flight. And, you know, like many times, or Kelly even, just leaving me hanging on trips. And so it's like, those things are, you have to be at the top, top to do that multiple times. But like the, the middle ground, you can't really, you know, not show up and really work hard at it. Is there a session and a venue that sticks out as like, these are the best waves that someone missed out on that they were supposed to be here to film? Um, yeah, there's a lot of those. Um, I'm tr just trying to think, like Kalani was supposed to be on a drive-thru and he didn't make it show up for it. So <laughs> You so guys yeah. adapted really well on that one. Though. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so that, that one pops in my head. But um, yeah, Kalani, Kalani probably has most of those. Um, 
<laughs> so he, there's a, in Castle of the Sky, he was supposed to be in the end section with uh, Rostovich. You know, like, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a ton of those <laughs> throughout the history. Um, yeah, but I would say Kalani's probably the champ. And, and he's changed <laughs> his whole program now, but back then he was pretty notorious. <laughs> well, on the topic of segments, we're going to watch the review presented by B.F. Goodrich, and we're going to check out Julian Wilson battle the then-rookie, Italo Ferreira in the quarterfinals of the 2015 Fiji Pro. As always, the review is sponsored by BF Goodrich Tires. BF Goodrich is celebrating 150 years in 2020, and they're celebrating in part by sponsoring the lineup, which is a great choice. If you want to wish BF Goodrich a happy 150th anniversary, you can tag at BF Goodrich Tires and use the hashtag BFG and WSL. Tag us and let us know what rearview segments you'd like to see in the future. Okay, here we go. All right, so the scene set here, this is the fifth of 11 events in 2015. This is the quarterfinals, and Julian in his fifth year on tour against the reigning uh, world champ, Italo Ferreira, who was only a rookie uh, back in 2015. <laughs> Have you been to Fiji much, Taylor? Yeah, I've been there a bunch of times with Kelly. Um, he always wants to go there to shoot stuff. Um, so yeah, I've been there a bunch. Are you it's, goofy footer or regular foot? I'm a regular foot, but um, I do know this angle, and usually it smells really bad with all the seagulls that are sitting up <laughs> on that tower, and it's hard to get to. I remember, I think this was, I was there, and um, it was Italo's first year. It was his first time ever there, and it was one of those really big um, years. And I think the days leading up to this final, they were really big, and he was doing these, like, suicide floaters over shish kebabs and i remember um he did really well he didn't get he didn't get through this heat but we were at the um we were at the airport later on I was with blair marlin and dane and we were having a pizza and we invited italo over and we we're talking to him and his english wasn't as good as it is now but he's still fine to talk to and he, he we we're like wow you did so well like congratulations those floaters and like turns over shish kebabs are crazy and we're like how many times have you been here and he's like this is my first time like <laughs> he just kind of was one of those guys he didn't know yeah didn't he's, he beat kelly in this one i think he did i think he yeah. beat kelly before yeah yeah that's impressive out here um yeah he's a he's a crazy free surfer um like i've I wonder if he, if he, I haven't seen a lot of his free surfs except for the stuff he's, he's put up, but I wonder if he pushes it as hard as he does in contests. Um, I don't know if he, if he wants to risk getting hurt and pushing it that hard. Yeah. Some, some guys, it's almost like they, they push it up until they do get hurt. And then the second they're out of the water for like four to six months, they're like, I got to be careful kind of thing. But I don't know. I mean, I think I keep seeing, I mean, he put the air out on Instagram the other day that was like a legit, 10 that. foot air like <laughs> a four that. foot wave or something yeah i saw that yeah what year is this so this is 2015 and i was going to ask you because you because you do have such an eye for high performance talent like is there anything that you can see in surfers early on where you're like that's going to be someone special yeah i i really look for style like style i think is the important thing that translates um for me um and uh um then then it's like uh what kind of pop they have when they go off the lip um, and, but, but it's the style first, because I really tried to promote, uh, linking of maneuvers and not just mm. doing one maneuvers. And so that if it's just one maneuver, you cut it pretty quick and not really see someone's style. But if you're, if you're linking multiple maneuvers, then you'll see their, their flaws and their style if they have them. And Italo, I mean, all the pundits always kind of commented on his style in particular, because a lot of surfers will either be back foot or front foot. And everyone that I kind of listen to is like, he's very, very like balanced between both feet, which, which does look different in a lot of ways. But 
like you, you can kind of tell here he's worked on a lot of stuff obviously in the last five years but he just has so much speed and the lines he's drawing are a little bit unique that you can kind of tell that he's got something yeah i i would say like uh he does a lot a lot of setup for when he his big moves so that would probably be something that i would tighten up in the edit i would i would keep it closer to that but when he's on backside he doesn't have any kinks in it it goes top to bottom to to top and um yeah so I, i'm just thinking of bells in particular the year that he won oh, he was really teed in that year and Kramas that same year um so yeah i think for me it's it's the transition stuff that i really watch for to make sure it's a, a good section and you've worked with julian a lot too can you kind of compare and contrast those styles from a from a filmmaker's perspective uh yeah um you know i i would say like style wise um you know, Julian's also worked on his style a lot. You know, in the earlier days, he had a little bit of a squattier style and like, um, and it's really smoothed out as he's progressed. But yeah, they're both, they both have that thing where you don't know what they're going to do off the lip. You don't, you can't, you can't really tell how, how much pop they're going to get. It, I constantly get surprised when I was filming with Julian by where I think you'd go and how much higher he would actually go. Mm. Um, but as far as styles, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a, it's harder to compare it here at, at Fiji. I, I think Fiji's a, a tougher wave to get clips. Um, you know, it's it's just there's a middle part of it that's a little bit hard to, like, really make it a keeper. Well, that's a good point. Like, I mean, it's it feels like it's unless it's almost like one of those really groomed, long, like right hand points, like um, like a J-Bay or something. It's really rare, I feel like, to see complete rides um, in film these days in free surfing films, as you pointed out, like. There's a lot of those, like, what's the biggest maneuver you can do on the wave? And we can cut that really quick. Um, but as you were saying, you, you like to promote kind of combination of maneuvers. I feel like Fiji, I've seen a few of those, whether it's been Parker Coffin, like, likes to line up those combinations. But as you're saying, it's like, it's really only two moves max. It's not like a huge set of moves. Yeah, like Andy would get clips out here. He, he was usually really good at getting clips here. But like for the most part, there's a, either a dead spot or a long barrel, but the barrel's not crazy enough. It's not like a pipe barrel or, or chokes. And, it's, and it's, so it's not like that dramatic. So you want somebody that's really attacking the lip on it. And there's just a weird flat spot on it um, at, at most times that sort of kill those multiple combos. Why do you think Kelly likes to film here? I mean, I know I, why he likes to go there, but like, um, I, he's gotten it good so many times. Like, um, for me, like I try to go to different locations so that it's fresh when you see their sections, but he likes to just try to get it better and better. Um, I, I usually try to steer him away from going here, but I think he just loves the whole experience. Sure. Yeah. How, how does, um, restaurants compare it from a filmmaker standpoint in terms of getting like high performance surfing compared to, um, cloud break for you? I, I think restaurants is probably better for, for clips, mm. you know, when it's bigger, um, cause they could really, if they're turning. So like I, I, I try to push not just to be a barrel hound, but to really sort of tur do turns in between those barrels. Right. There's um, that flat section you're talking about between that big opening swoop and the barrel. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, uh, you know, the barrel, like that was a great barrel for a contest, but it wouldn't have been great for for a video section. So it's it's a, just a little bit in that real close, but not not there. When you go on um, trips, whether it's to Tavern or somewhere else, do you, do you get to bake in a bit of water time for yourself? Yeah, there's always time. Um, boat trips were usually the best for that, but I'd usually get like sunstroke because I would surf in between every, <laughs> sure. every, every session. So 
Um, yeah, there, there's always baked time in there. Um, yeah, that that section right before this barrel is the, the one that I'm talking about. That's really hard to do something progressive. And so right. if you could get a little barrel, do a big turn, and then get barreled again, then that's a keeper. But it's really tough to do that. What do you think it was? You mentioned Andy was really um, successful at getting clips out of cloud break. What was it about his approach that that lent itself to that kind of wave? I think he just uh, approached the barrel section as a turning section a lot of times and would come be, come up and uh, tap that section and then sort of fall into the barrel. And so, um, yeah, he just approached really steep sections almost where he would throw his board up there and then figure out how to get out of it. And, you know, he, he just was that comfortable that he you do, but he, he would just attack the barrel section. I think both of these guys, I, I know Julian's on a quad. It looks like um, Italo's on a quad too. For, for, I guess I'll start with like the hi-fi stuff. Like do guys ride varied equipment that much for, for if they're trying to bag hi-fi surfing clips for you? Sort of when quads just came out, there's a little bit of a time where people are put, doing that. But for the most part, it, it stretches the turn out a little bit too long on their carves like we we would shoot all day and if we got a clip that was a good day Mm. and so when you go on a trip to bali bali or even fiji for for a week you're trying to get five five keepers so so you don't need your board to be be flowing through everything you just need it to flow on one wave and the right wave for it so generally trifins are the ones for those those kind of waves yeah. I mean, even, I mean, it's one of those things I like to talk to the the men and women on the CT a lot, just in terms of equipment experimentation, because they're, they're very hesitant to, even if we're just warming up, they're like, now I'm riding like my Ferrari board because I want to be comfortable on it. And then guys like Kelly um, kind of were, and Dane, I guess, to a degree, were kind of the only ones that experimented with different kind of boards and tails and in, in, um, in competition. I was wondering if that ever transferred over or translated over to when you were filming with them for free surf videos. Not in that, you know, like more in the travel log ones and when right. they sort of went that way, but not in the high performance stages. Uh, those boards were just like those Ferraris. And, and the guys were riding those other boards when it was average and we weren't really filming. But, but when it was like film time, it was go as fast as you can and turn as hard as you can and just hope for the best. And you mentioned um, filming, it, whether it was proximity or sipping jet streams, it might have been both, um, with Dave Rostovich. Um, and he's a guy that that is really sort of popularized high performance surfing on alternative craft. From a filmmaker standpoint, like what what are you looking for when you go film with someone like Dave Rostovich? Um, Dave Dave's got well for one style is like so huge. He's he's got that Tom Curran style, um, but um, he just got that X factor. It's weird. He's sort of like one of those guys that he could handle going at code red, catching the waves there to you know, waves equivalent of J-Bay and just really connecting the lines on them. I would use him in some of those performance films that you're talking about, but they were they were more barrel-based and, a, and a, just carbs, but but it seemed to fit for me because he was pushing the limits on that side. But yeah, he's uh, his style and, and, and just his lines he draws is really fun. And I've asked about writing a trifin and, and he just, he, he says his body's too stiff and mm. so he needs that twin fin to help loosen him up. And, uh, but I don't, I don't believe it. Yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys that I think he, I think he beat Parco at like the Billabong Junior Series Championship at Burley. Like he was just one of those guys that was so talented when they were young too. And he kind of just went his own route. I'm sure he could ride a trifin just fine. I think that's, that was actually one of the first times we talked was, um, 
that code red swell what we were filming for because I was quote unquote running the marina and the boats uh, for the event that day, and you're like, "We'd like to get a boat." And I'm like, "Yep, go out, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no problem." Yeah. It was psychic um, that day. Yeah, it was psycho. Yeah, it was. I, they, I remember like the gendarme came, they shut the marina. It was a whole thing. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. you mentioned um, outside of the code red kind of like Frankenstein swells. Like, what what do you like about filming in Tahiti? Essentially, we were talking about this the other week with um, uh, Tatiana Weston Webb and Tyler and Carolyn about how ultimately it's a very fundamentals-based wave in the sense of you line it up, you set your line, you knife the drop, and, and you're good to go kind of thing. Um, but from a, again, from a filmmaking perspective, what do you like about Tahiti compared to, compared to Fiji? Yeah, I would say Fiji's probably easier to film. Um, you know, Fiji's got that tower and, and you can get multiple angles. I would say Tahiti's a little tough because you have that one angle for the most mm. part. But what's nice about it is the way that it gets a little bit more freakish and so a lot more freakish used. And um, yeah, but I, I needed to be that that sort of freakish or starting to be, you know, like that heavy level to be usable. You know, if the, if the barrel looks too easy, then then it doesn't have that shock value when you watch a video. Totally. And, and you mentioned you spend a bit of time in New York, you're from Solana Beach, but I think you've also um, spent time like r- residing in, in, I think, Byron and Bali. Is that accurate? Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to live in different spaces and, and what that was yeah. like for your creative process? Yeah, like, um, you know, traveling and making these films for all the 90s, I just sort of got used to a, a, like a gypsy lifestyle. And so when my wife got pregnant, we decided to keep that lifestyle, but be a little bit more responsible. And so we decided to move every six years to a new country. And we picked um, Bali as a first place. And that was, it wasn't intentional, but then all of a sudden everybody started filming in Bali. I was, I don't like to film where I live because then I don't get a surf as much. <laughs> um, but but that, that became a spot that all the, uh, you know, brands started sending guys to get clips. And then uh, I moved to Byron from there and then uh, New York from there. Cool. So are you still on the six year program or? Um, I'm, I'm sort of, it's now a little bit, my kids are older, so it's doesn't, it was easy with schooling to have it be that, you know, right before first grade, right before seventh grade were natural sort of breaks. Um, but I, I still uh, romanticize on, on doing another big move and I, you know, Portugal is probably on my short list. Portugal's rad. With uh, with where you ended up, and I know we've talked about diversifying how you're expressing surfing, whether it's with Dave or Steph or someone like that. But when we're just talking about how you classify like top tier high performance surfing for you, where do you kind of rank or how do you rank or how do you kind of harmonize like rail turns versus airs versus like fin free maneuvers in, in terms of your hierarchy on, on filmmaking? Well, the, those big maneuvers are always important, but like our whole thing was like combos. Um, mm. We would say combos before, you know, every, I would just constantly like put that in everybody's heads. Like let's get a combo, whether it's two progressive like airs or a carve and then an air, whatever it is, like let's make it multiple turns. I think uh, me and Kelly romanticized about like having his whole section be paddle, take off to kick out every wave. <laughs> And so, like, all of its keepers be, like, really complete waves. Um, that ended up not really happening as, as, he, as he got other keepers. But um, you, uh, the idea of that, it was in our ethos of, like, really, like, not just cheating it. And not just, like, sort of just showing it right before, like, even mid-face to air. But showing right. a little bit of the technique so 
kids at home or, or adults at home could watch it and sort of learn some of their setup to that air or setup to that maneuver. And I, I like the idea back, especially during the 90s, of having it as almost a way to sort of like learn how to improve your own surfing. We, um, we've been doing a lot of stuff on the WSL site with like these old clips, like whether with the vault and we're playing like, you know, here's the 2005 Tahiti event and we'll watch it. And, um, it's so fascinating because like a lot, it's, there's so many nines that get thrown, um, for barrels, um, that would probably be, you know, 15 years later, like a four or five yeah. or something. Yeah. And just like the learning curve and how good everyone's gotten at everything in surfing. Do you ever sit back and kind of with your oeuvre of films, like from the start to where surfing is now and be like, wow, like, like high performance surfing's come so far. Yeah, definitely. There's some clips that I'm embarrassed when I watch them, you know, back, <laughs> you know, like that I used it. Um, usually the ones that hold up are the ones that, um, have a good style to it because sometimes, um, if you're pushing the performance, your style gets a little janky to do it, you know, to really sort of learn how to get above your board or there's something or lay back to it or something that's a little bit weird with it. And mm -hmm. so those ones really don't hold up the test of time when someone does a air reverse, but they're really like arms are flailing everywhere. And it might've been like the second air reverse, but, but when you see it in context, they look pretty bad. I mean, and it's funny, I think I, and I'm going to screw this quote up, but I think Parka recently commented on one of Taylor Knox's like recent web clips and said something to the effect of if Taylor Knox had unlimited speed, he would be the best surfer in the world today at, at his age. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. he'd be the best yeah. surfer in the world, agnostic right. of how old he is sort of. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, Taylor, Taylor, uh, you know, he has so much power and speed and when he's on that, he, the way he links it is amazing. And, and he's one of those guys that you asked about hierarchy, his carbs held up to someone else's airs in a different section. So for me, I didn't really have that hierarchy. It was more of like, is that a big turn? And it could be a carb or an air. Um, there's definitely some airs that are revolutionary or, or showstoppers that change that dynamics. But um, I'm thinking of, uh, Knox had a couple of those as well as in carve spaces on huge waves that, um, in focus, I think it was at cave rock where he was doing some big ones. We, we talked a little bit about you sitting in that arbiter space of, of just really just having a ton of visibility on the, the cutting edge of surfing for so long outside of the film space. Did you ever have like coaches or brands come to you and say, Hey, what do you think of this kid? Do you think this kid's going to be a world champ or, or any sort of, I guess, just sort of, um, just sort of scout report. Did, did anyone kind of come to you with that at all? Yeah. Like, um, some of the brands would, would really pitch their up and coming, uh, new signing. Um, and we would throw them on trips and just see how they, how they hung with, with the crew and how they performed under pressure. Cause um, it's really a, a pressure game. There's a lot of people that just couldn't handle shooting with, with the micro, uh, microscope on them. And so, you know, like the current one that sort of like has took a while to surpass that was like Craig Anderson. Like we'd go mm -hmm. on trips and he would not really blow up. But then if he had his own filmer and he was doing it on his own, he would get amazing clips. And that's he's he's since surpassed that. But for the longest time, that was that was an issue that he wouldn't be able to get it on the spot. And so... That we would put that microscope on a lot of these young kids coming up. And I think when we filmed with Jordy, he wasn't signed yet to anybody. And he was one of those guys that was sort of um, just hyped and and he he delivered clips like 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 the best of them, you know, right. like rapid fire. 
I actually think this heat in the water is a kind of a good like case study of that a little bit, you know, because like Julian under a microscope, probably since he was about 11 um, and, and, and justifiably like an amazing surfer and has been for a long time. And we were talking about this the other week and I vividly remember the year that Italo qualified. It was, it was kind of the storm, the Brazilian storm was happening. There were a lot of Brazilians on tour and he got in on the qualifying series. And I remember looking at the name and I'm like, oh yeah, there's just like, there's so much talent out of Brazil coming on. I had no idea who he was. And then I remember seeing an edit that he put out from like Rocky Lefts. I'm like, wow, that guy's got a ton of pop. Like he just seems like something else. But it's crazy because he, we look back now and it's like, I wouldn't have pegged him even after that clip is like, he's going to be a contender in a couple of years, you know, which is probably a bias on my part. But I wonder, you know, at this point, it's 2015. If you had to make a sort of spot analysis of Julian and Italo, what, what would be your predictions for both of them? Did you see kind of a world title for either of them? Do you still see one for Julian? Back then, like, um, I remember that we were doing a fantasy surfer thing and Jack Johnson put Italo on his team because he scoured the web and found Italo surfing his home break, uh, uh, that little right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the Natal yeah. Coast. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so he he saw that footage and knew he'd do good at snapper, and so like put him on his team from that. So, I, but I didn't see it coming before this event. I didn't know who he was. Yeah, like uh, going to your second question on like Julian winning a world title. Um, you know, like I think obviously his talents there, um, and he's he could definitely do it. He could he performs great in all those events. But I I, I think that. For some reason, he, he seems to get in his own way. And it reminds me a lot of like even, you know, Taylor Knox, who who wasn't that same level of uh, ending the results, but the performance was always there. But there's just always something that was just blocking it. And I, mm. I just think it's it's maybe emotions. The way he approaches heats is maybe too emotional and, and stubborn and not, you know, like what I like about Isolo and Gabrielle and even John John of late is – as the heat progresses, you just see their energy level increase and they start moving around like like sort of a shark in a feeding frenzy. Mm. And it's rare that I see that with Julian. Right. It's almost like he sits the course and just waits. And if it comes, it comes. And the year that Parco won his world title, I remember he was like sort of like in that same sort of like moving around and sort of like uh, have like a frenetic energy if there's no waves as the heat went on. So... I guess until I see Julian do that, I, I don't really, like, I wouldn't put him on my team. Yeah, a little bit of mongrel. Well, it sounds like sounds like you watch a lot of the webcasts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I watch it. I, I love it. Um, it reminds, I just like seeing the performances and, and uh, um, you know, like, I'm a fan of all the all the guys, on the, especially the top guys. Um, I think uh, Gabrielle gets a bad rap a lot, you know, like, just, <laughs> I, 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 I've met him and I think he's a cool guy. And so, like, um, I think he reminds me of Mick Fanning when Mick Fanning was um, on tour in the early days where he re really wouldn't bring any personality to his interviews. And he would just sort of like show up and like punch the, the card at work and, and leave and save his personality for off offsite. Um, I think Gabby has that side and people haven't really gravitated towards him. But as far as the performance, all of it, I like it. The entertainment level is great. Yeah. Oh, here's one of those first ledges for Julian. Oh, wow. Yeah, that so that was a keeper that wave right there. I think that one that one came in at like a nine something. Yeah, so nine four yeah. three. That, that was that was like the only keeper I saw so far at the seat, but that was a that was a keeper. So that was great. You mentioned something interesting when you were talking about Craig Anderson and just 
pr the pressure of having to perform in certain situations and just feeling more comfortable in other situations. And it reminds me of this conversation John and I were having a little bit about, and it pertains to Julian and Italo, I guess, just about the hype machine, you know, in the media and in the industry and like how much that can like level up the expectations to almost an, an insurmountable level for you to perform, especially when you're young, um, as opposed to the benefit of maybe coming in under the radar and, and um, you know, overachieving in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, like for, I think that's a huge thing, especially nowadays with, with how much spotlight every event has with the live audience, but more so the online audience. It's, it's a big, it's a big pressure cooker. And I think it, you know, like uh, Ethan Ewing, you know, like he surfed amazing in the first contest, but didn't get a follow-up wave and lost early. Yeah. And, you know, like he never recovered from that. And it's like that little bit of confidence for those those guys just coming on tour early on just compounds itself. And um, yeah, so I think I think the pressure is is massive in this spotlight now. It's like basically shooting for a part with the whole world watching. Yeah, geez, Ethan, I'm glad you brought him up. He was one of those guys that the, even now, like the edits he's putting out are so so good, and they're just like probably him at home on North Stradbrook. But like his style and it's so good, and he's so fast and he's so strong. He was someone I was really looking forward to seeing how he did on tour this year. Yeah, you know, like I I think he, it's really important for Ethan and, and a lot of the rookies, but especially Ethan to get a good result in the first couple contests. Mm. I think if he doesn't, he could fall back in that same sort of self doubt. And so I think it's important that he just really does what he did to finish the year and even start the year at, at Manly um, and just um, really like attack, attack it and go to the strengths. We, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the WSL announced some directional changes to the tours starting in 2021. One of those is um, there's going to be a world title event, a single day event that determines the world champ. Um, and it's going to be, the title contenders surfing each other, uh, surfing against each other, and the winner of that event, having performed in the water, will win the world title. What are your thoughts on that compared to? I mean, it's a it's a pretty big departure from what we've done, but I guess it replicates a little bit how Italo and uh, Gabrielle went head to head in the final heat of twenty nineteen. Yeah, you know, like I think I think it's uh, it's an interesting concept, and I really like it. Um, I wish I wish the you know like. Pipe's the perfect place to end the contest in the year, but like, I just wish it was like at like macaronis or or even Kramis, and just so you could see the performance, have it a performance space because barrels. There's just a lot of X factor with it, hmm. um, but but that's one of those things where you know going back to the question about Julian, if he's in the top six or top five or whoever the cutoff is, he could easily sweep that day and win the title. So that's a different sort of thing for for him where I could see a better chance in that capacity. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think like Pipe definitely should be a part of the tour. Um, but I, I like the idea of having like, I think at Pipe or at Chopes or a lot of times, like the, the ocean really decides, you know, <laughs> you, you're just on that monster wave and, and because you're so good, you're going to get your 10. Um, and that a wave like macaronis or, or any number of high performance um, waves out there, it is really comes down to performance. Um, and it's interesting. Like, I think if you look at like both the guys and the girls agnostic of the venue, you look at kind of those top five, top 10, top 15, every one of them is, is surfing at such a high level and is so alpha, probably any of them believe that on any given day they can run the table and, and take it down. So I'm, I, 
I mean, I'm not saying this because they pay me, but I, I am excited to see it happen anyway. Um, I'm, so. I'm excited too. I actually hope Kelly makes the top five for that <laughs> so he could take a shot at it. Um, yeah, but. I think Kelly, he's like Lestat the Vampire in Interview with the Vampire. He's just gotten a bit of a taste and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I can do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. if it's Especially if it's a pipe and he's in the top five, like I would give him as, as much of a shot as anybody. But maybe maybe they need to have the second to last contest at Pipe mm. and the second to last contest for the girls at, in Maui and then switch mm. for their last one. That's so, interesting. <laughs> I don't I know. I mean, but even Kelly, like, I mean, he is not human, obviously. It's like kind of the Michael Jordan documentary quote about him. But I mean, even the stuff he's been putting him out from Duramba and Palm Beach or wherever the hell he's surfing in Australia right now, like his small wave game looks unbelievable right now. Like he just looks like he's fit and he's he's loose and he's just surfing so sharp. Yeah, like what he did at the Olympic trials in in Chiba, um, mm. he was he made like the semis or the uh, you know right, I don't know, they had a weird sort of seating thing, but he went really far in the event. And was like showing up under pressured heats against like all the best um, known beach break guys and and really holding his own. So I think Florida comes into play with that. I think it gets overlooked because the waves are so good nowadays of his sure. strengths and bad waves, but. Um, he favors like that sort of like weird waves and adjusting to weird situations is, is sort of his strengths nowadays. Besides Have you been watching the last dance on ESPN? Yeah. Yeah. It like, uh, Kelly was the Jordan of our group, but like what, what was very similar is like how Jordan elevated everybody else and really like pushed everybody on his team to be better. And that, that same sort of energy was with Rob and Shane and Ross and all that. And, and Knox, yeah, I mean, I, I've been watching it. It's it's a very, very good, obviously. And you have a more of a personal relationship with Kelly than I do. Mine's mostly professional. But I feel like watching it has unlocked a lot of insights in my head about Kelly. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's all maps really well. <laughs> like, and, and what you said is totally right. Like, just him continuing to elevate people around him in a big way. And, and you know, we saw a side shot of Taj, who I think was coming up in the next quarter after this one. Taj is one of those guys that, that probably elevated Kelly and Kelly elevated him. And he's a guy that you got to work with specifically on, on one of his projects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Taj was, uh, we worked with Trilogy with him and that was with Parco and Andy and Taj. And Taj, I, I think at the end of the day, had probably um, three times the footage of both the guys combined because he just was like, loved videoing and worked hard at it. Where like Parco so used to just getting clips showing up at Snapper. And then, then Andy was, you know, he was really motivated when it was like Big Karamis or some of these other spots or Desert Point, but not really, you know, groveling it out in like the beach breaks or, or doing that stuff for clips, you know, so um, where Taj was just, you know, motivated always. It's funny, too, because I'm sure that's a pretty common trajectory with guys in terms of their enthusiasm to, to grovel it out and, and sort of less than sort of, you know. Greek god Olympus level conditions. Um, is there anyone in addition to Taj that you kind of felt maintained that enthusiasm and froth for just getting clips all the time, even as they kind of got a little older? Uh, Kelly's still that way. Like Kelly's still trying to get clips. Um, I would say uh, all the momentum guys. They they're if if like we were like going to shoot something for a project, they'd all be like trying to do it all day long. Um, I would say the next generation wasn't as much. It's like almost every other generation would come back into excitement and, <laughs> and you know, so sort of skip a generation. Um, 
but yeah, like, uh, um, I'm just trying to think of some, some guys that are, that are a little bit more relevant, um, that would be pretty fired up. It just depended on the project, but, um, uh, yeah, Taj was the one that sort of stands out that, that, um, really wants to shoot a lot of stuff. He would, he would just, it was nonstop. And I think Andy, and Parco pulled me aside and just said, Hey, we, you got to lose some of this footage and, <laughs> you know, like uh, not have it so uh, overbalanced with Tosh, Tosh clips. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're winding down on this heat. Um, do you have, do you have any surf projects in the mix now or on the whiteboard or anything? And, and with someone like either of these guys, but I guess Italo, um, considering he's the world champ and, and how much he's developed since then, is he someone that you would consider working with on anything? You know, like, like, I feel like the, the Brazilian crew right now reminds me so much of the momentum crew and, um, where they're, they're all sort of staying together, not staying together, but, but all like united and they're pushing each other and like more competitive with each other than they are anybody else. And so like, for me, like I would, uh, I would love if somebody makes it, not me, but somebody makes like a, a, a momentum equivalent nowadays with all the young guys and just really like showcase Italo and, and, uh, Gabby and Philippe in like waves that are on tour. I think the big thing is seeing them in different kinds of waves. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, as far as projects that I'm working on, um, I'm working, the only thing close to surf is I'm working on a Nat Geo film with Mick Fanning, um, and hit him sort of understanding what's going on with sharks. So that's he mentioned, he mentioned that. And, and what's the timing on that? Like in terms of where is the project at? in terms of completion and when, when can we expect to see it? We're, we're doing the final like audio edits now, the edits, um, done and it's just audio and coloring. So, um, as far as when it's released, you know, like it's, it's who knows nowadays, cause there was going to be film festivals of involved course, yeah. and, and now, now it might go straight to TV. So I don't yeah. know, but it's, it'll be this year. Cool. Yeah. Well, we put it out to, uh, the Instagram community, the people that follow us on at the lineup pod on Instagram to see if they had any questions for you. And uh, we got a bunch, but we'll give you the three ones that we, uh, we pulled for today's conversation. So, excuse me, the first one um, is from Captain Robbie C. And he asks, what session uh, over the course of your career had the most radical surfing you've ever seen? Uh, well, radical uh, is, a, is a tough one to sort of narrow down because like to me, like when Andy was surfing maxed out Kramis and doing carves and and air dropping the barrels, like to me, that was like progression at the top and still holds up. So, but you know, there's Julian and Taj doing, you know, huge spins off that same wave on a smaller side that are like in there. Um, but probably the one that stands out is Kelly down in the Caribbean, you mm -hmm. know, that we filmed for sipping jet streams. Um, he literally surfed for eight hours that day and, he came running by to grab a uh, peanut butter jelly sandwich and run back down. And as he's running by, he's like, if I could repeat this day for the rest of my life, I would. And so to have Kelly that frothed out, you know, is probably stuff going down. That's awesome. And Noah Purrington asked, how do we get pro surfers acting again in videos? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like at the end, I feel like I was fighting an uphill battle to get the skits going, you know, like people were just <laughs> over them. Um, I think, uh, for me, like, like when we first started doing those things, um, 
you know, surfing got really sort of serious. Everybody's careers blew up and it was starting to get really serious. And I was just trying to like make surfing feel fun. And that's why I sort of had those a breakup, like sort of these, these guys that were now becoming the most famous surfers. Um, and I, I pushed it more than anybody else. I think a lot of the guys reluctantly did those um, skits, but it was sort of like required. <laughs> um, but I would love to see him back. I think uh, there's a lot of funny guys, especially the Australians. They're hilarious. Um, you know, like I, there's probably some something in the works. I, I hope it comes back. I think Sophie I, needs a little bit of that. Yeah, I, I always love the creative stuff that happened around surf films, especially yours. I think one of the best lines ever written was... Um, I might screw it up now that I said it's the best. Um, you know, Bruce Brown um, made Endless Summer by following winter around the world or something like that. I was just like, it's so true. It's great. Um, okay, so uh, last question is from friend of the pod, Jesse Miley Dyer. Who has been the best and worst actor out of the men in your movies? Um, yeah, I would say that, oh, man, um, the... the like I prefaced, uh, they were all sort of forced to do these things. So, you know, like a lot of times they'd reluctantly show up and do them. Um, I would say that Dan Malloy was really painfully bad and embarrassed by it, but, um, he was pretty bad, but, um, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say Kelly, Shane and Rob were like pretty like into it and they would practice and sort of like get their things down. Um, but I'll, I'll stick with like a Malloy was probably the worst cause they didn't, didn't know what they're doing. <laughs> I, I special shout out for Ross Williams as the Seven Eleven clerk, the ornery Seven Eleven clerk. I thought he was excellent. <laughs> yeah, Hi, that that was hyper believable. <laughs> that was a fun one. All right, cool. So before we go, we've got the lightning round. It's ten questions. Um, answer as fast as you can. If you personally could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless, what would you choose? I've been riding twins a lot lately, so I'll probably go with the twin. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Uh, this one's the toughest one for me because I spend half the time in New York and you have a pizza there. <laughs> and then, and when I'm there having that, I miss a burrito in California. So um, can I just split it like that's that? A, that's a good answer. I like it. Yeah. Last book you read? Um, I've been reading Superhuman by Dave As Asprey. <laughs> Best surf film ever. Uh, Beyond Blazing Boards, um, that one's the one that when I was in junior high really got me just excited to be a surfer. One wave you never have to go back to? Um, El Porto. <laughs> um, if you only got to surf one wave for the rest of your life? Um, bank vaults. Best person to share a lineup with? My parents. Worst person to share a lineup with? Any, any pro that I... You know, any pro that I've filmed, you know, like they, um, except for like Rob and, and some of those guys would give me ways. But the rest of them would be like paddling on the shoulder, looking at me going, you sure you're going? You're sure you're going? <laughs> Man, I know that feeling so well. Um, OK, last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by. By going surfing. Awesome. Taylor Steele, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Thank you. So that's it. That's the lineup presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold's conversation with Taylor Steele. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Special thank you to Taylor for his openness and conversation today, as well as for his decades of stoking everyone out through his films, which you can watch every Friday now on WorldSurfLeague.com through the WSL Collection series. 
The lineup will return with these conversations every week. Please have a listen and let us know what you think. If you haven't already, please download, listen, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. The ratings and downloads really help the show spread. And the more the show spreads, the more of these we get to do. As always, you can find us on Instagram. We're at the lineup pod and we try to respond to all the messages that we get. Uh, We'll keep opening the floor to get questions that you may have for our upcoming guests. You can also follow me personally at at Dave Prodan. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of the lineup at low tide. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are and we'll see you then.